go on and do what you're going to do. Don't second guess yourself and don't have to figure it out. You'll learn as you go. As you go and do it, you figure it out. And it's the best way you learn what you shouldn't do and what you should do. Those doors just keep opening and it just happens for you. But if you have something that you thought about doing, don't wait. Just go out and get going. Don't wait till everything's in place. And then also just to push your limits through doing all that, you'll learn so much about yourself and you'll grow. To me, that's you know one of those things in life that we all need to be doing is growing and changing and better for ourselves and better for everybody else. You're listening to Femcanic Garage, the podcast that features women in the automotive and motorsports industries, a community that elevates, empowers, and evolves by smashing stereotypes and breaking down barriers for women. I'm your host, Jamie Blossman. Buckle up for the ride, Femcanics. Femcanics, I want to hear from you and get your feedback. Text me what your favorite episode is, how I could improve the podcast, what products would you like to see, but most importantly, I just want to connect with you. Text me at 614-953-6380. Again, that's 614-953-6380. I receive each message directly, and I'm excited to hear from you. Go on, press pause, and save my number, 614-953-6380. Renee Brinkeroff is in the driver's seat today. Renee is a rally racer. She started her racing career at 56 years old. She's competed in almost all continents of the world, including North America, Australia, South America, Asia, Europe, and Africa. Antarctica is the only one left, and she'll be checking that off as well soon. With the love and support from her husband and children, she founded her own racing company, Valkyrie Racing. She also founded Valkyrie Gifts, a nonprofit to help end child sex trafficking. Sit back and enjoy the ride. Hello, Femcanics. This is Jamie B. coming to you, and I have Renee Brinkeroff in the driver's seat today. How are you doing today, Renee? Jamie, I'm doing great. So happy to be joining you. I am, too. And, you know, I, a lot of times I affectionately call it Instagram stalking. I'm out stalking and trying to find all these amazing women to put in the spotlight. And your daughter actually reached out to me and said, hey, I think my mom will be a great fit for your podcast. So I went and did some research based on some links that she provided me. And I could not agree more. You are a perfect fit for this. Now, I'm totally making an assumption here. Did you hear about the podcast through that Porsche girl? Christina was out there. She's on social media a lot more than I am. And we were and are looking for women mechanics to uh -huh. help us in a future project. And I think that's how she stumbled upon you guys. Nice. That is so exciting. That is so exciting. What I would like to do is pick your brain, one, to understand your background a little bit. Your background's pretty well documented, so we'll probably do like the 20,000-foot view. And also leverage your expertise to maybe educate folks on the sport that you're in. 
So why don't we back up a little bit and kind of start in the beginning. How and why did you get into motorsports? Oh, okay. Motorsports. I got into motorsports around 56 years old. I'm now 64. And it was a have to. I know that sounds odd, but it was something I realized I'd been telling myself for a really long time, 25 or 30 years. It was this subconscious thing. And it was one day I'm going to race a car. When I heard that voice, I realized what I've been saying is like, okay, you better go do that thing you've been telling yourself. And I didn't have a background with cars or racing or anything. So it was this whole new arena for me to go into and learn about. And that's how it got going. Wow. So you started when you were 56 years old. Yes. And did you grow up in a family of loving cars or is it just one of those things that you're drawn to? It was just something I filled in the blank with, race a car. It could have been anything I could have said, open an ice cream shop. I mean, right. it could have been anything. In a sense, it couldn't have been anything because it was something I, I just, it was like a dream kind of thing, an out there thing that I could look forward to get me up in the morning when I was having really, really hard days, I think. So it was something that would have been way, way out there for me. And I think that had to be why I said race a car. That is awesome. When you went to your husband and told him, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this, what was his reaction? Well, he has a cousin who was involved in racing a Corvette and had heard about, you know, cars and coffee and things like that. Um, so when I first mentioned it, he thought I meant something like that, cars and coffee. Or at first, maybe he didn't even take me very seriously. And then it was, okay, you mean cars and coffee? And it was like, no, no, I mean racing. He goes, you mean racing? I said, like real racing. So it was this progression of multiple conversations and realizing, because I didn't really know anything about racing. So I didn't know what that was going to look like, but it was sort of, both of us at the same time, me exploring what that would look like and him understanding what I meant by it. Wow. Okay. Now you have children as well. You have four children. When you shared it with them, because they would have been in their 20s, 30s, somewhere in there when you started? Yeah. So our kids uh, were all in their early to late 20s at that time. And yes, I have four children, two boys and two girls. And um it was the same for them. You know, there was never any resistance to my idea. It was just like, who are you? We, where did this come from? There was nothing that they could point to that would make them understand why I was even saying this. So it was this whole process of them understanding and my figuring it out. And it was just all hand in hand. Now, there's two questions that I'm thinking of here. One, do you get a lot of women that come up to you in their 40s and 50s saying, thank you, you're an inspiration to me. It's crazy for me, Renee, because I just turned 42 a couple weeks ago. And, and I'm interviewing all age ranges for my podcast. And I have, you know, 30-year-olds, like literally 30, 31-year-olds talking about how they got into the industry late at 25. <laughs> and And I'm sitting there like, Oh, wow. Okay. It, and it's like this whole thing around age. Like I started my podcast when I was 40 years old. And there's a lot to be done past the age of 25. <laughs> you know, have you had a lot of women come up to you and just say thank you? 
Jamie, I have had a lot of women um, and even young girls, all ages, just look at me and think, thank you. And that's so awesome. And it's encouraging to me. And I never really thought so much about my age at the time, but through their eyes, I realized what an odd thing that was for me to be doing and starting at that late of an age. But yeah, I think it's, it's been really encouraging for me to, to hear people's feedback and their response. And then I realized, you know, this isn't just something that I had to go do. This was actually something that was encouraging other women to do things that they'd been thinking about or, or afraid to do. And, you know, all those things, the way it looks. Absolutely. And it's not like you grew up around cars. This was just one of those things, and it's such a really cool story. And the other thing is there's multiple motorsports, different facets of motorsports you could uh, dive into. And the process that you shared with me in arriving at your particular motorsport, do you care sharing that with the audience of why you chose and how you chose which racing to go into? I, You know, it was... It was a notion, a preconceived idea. So, for instance, what I mean by that is, first of all, I had to learn about the different kinds of racing. And the first thing I saw was, you know, people racing on tracks. And if you know nothing about it and you've never been on a track, it looks boring. It just looks downright boring to go around the same thing over and over again. And so that's how I... I said, no, I said no to that kind of racing because it just, my preconceived idea that it was going to be terribly boring. And when I heard about rally racing, I thought, well, that sounds exciting. So that was my, my very simple process of how I got into being a rally driver. I love it. (laughs) And if that isn't a testament to sometimes we just overcomplicate things (laughs) and that's just a simple thought process behind it. Now, not all listeners may know exactly what rally racing is. Do you care kind of given a little definition to educate the listeners on what is rally racing and why is it different? And you kind of touched on it before. It's not a track, like a paved track, but do you care just given a high level definition of it? Sure. So rally racing, I would describe as just on roads and it can be dirt, gravel, tarmac, any different kind of road that they choose. You always have a navigator. There's different types of rally racing. There's time distance, or there's what I call real rally racing. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but that is where it's all about speed. And it's, it's the same as if you are on a track where you go flat out as fast as you can and, you know, try not to wreck and be the the first one to cross that finish line. So what they do is usually they'll close a road. So if you have a favorite country road or mountain road, and you sometimes say, I wish I could have this whole road to myself, that's what they do. They close off the road so there's no traffic. And that doesn't mean people don't sneak in with their cars or you don't come across animals, et cetera, but they will close off a road and they say, you just go for it. You have the whole road and you just have a, you know, a countdown and they set you off. Depends on the type of event, maybe a one minute or two minute interval. You have a navigator who sits next to you with a book and that book tells them what's ahead. So you're driving what you see, but they're telling you what you don't see. So two, three turns ahead of you. So you know how fast to go into that turn, where to set up for your exit, what's going to be coming ahead. So you visualize in your mind the road ahead and you just 
um, he calls your turn. So there'll be a number for the difficulty of the turn and different events will have different numbering Mm -hmm. and uh, the direction of the turn. And then if there's obstacles or things, maybe it's off camber. Sometimes there's notes like that, that go in there. And so you are, he's just calling those turns and you're just going flat out for every stretch of road you can. If it's a straight, obviously your foot's all the way to the floor. And if it's a, a corner, you're gauging how fast to go into that corner. I'm, I'm trying to maybe visualize isn't the right word. Just imagine what a 30 second conversation, because it's kind of like a conversation, right? So can you give like a couple liners of what a navigator would say to you as a driver? Sure. As you're preparing for maybe a turn or something? Yeah. Okay. So I'll give you a, an example. It would be something like left three, 30 meters, right two, 100 meters, right one, and followed by just things like that. So they'll give you the direction with an L or an R, the number which gauges how tight that turn is, and then the distance between those turns. And it, he might even say, straight five kilometers. And then typically they get lost because you're driving so fast and there's so many notes. And if they get lost, they just say drive by sight or whatever is the phrase that you've to agree upon that they know. And you know that they're lost in the book and you just have to drive what you see and then they'll find their place again and then resume. Wow. (laughs) I could never be a navigator for the simple fact that when I ride and try to read, I get motion sickness. I I I could drive like the driving sounds real fun, but wow! Talk about a team sport in every stretch of the imagination with that. Absolutely, you have to have a really good rapport with your navigator. The two of you, there has to be the same mutual trust, and you have to also have the same mm, appetite for danger. So if one of you is saying slow down and the other one is wanting to go faster, that's not going to work at all. So finding that person who wants to push as hard as you do and has the same um, comfort level with, with risk. So you're on the same page, right? You don't want to be arguing. I've seen teams with the driver and the navigator yelling outside of the car and one or the other saying, I'm not getting back in the car with you. So it's really important that you have the right person sitting next to you. And on average, how long are these races? Rally events can be anywhere from a day or two to seven to 10 days to um, a really odd one. It's not like the typical rally, but it was the peaking to Paris. And that was 36 days, 9,000 miles. 36 days long? Yeah. You have to really like the person that you're working with. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep, you better be sure you pick the right person to be in the car with you. Right. And and just out of curiosity, because one of the goals, and, and if I misrepresent this, please correct me. One of your goals was to race on every continent. Exactly. Yep. And you're almost there. Exactly. Almost there. One more continent, Antarctica. That's the final one that's coming up. Wow. What was the scariest race that you have done? The scariest would definitely be the La Carrera Panamericana. Um, That's a seven-day rally, 2,000 miles through Mexico. That has a 30% attrition rate of cars crashing, failing for some reason or another. It's my first year out that I did that event. Someone died the first morning. Cars will go off cliffs. It's, It's a daily occurrence. I mean, it's just 
high speed, high risk. And we've had our own accidents in that event, our own close calls, almost went off a cliff and in the testing, uh, the qualifying round one time. And um, that race, because um, in that race, my car has been prepared. That race has been on tarmac. And in that race, we could be but competitive. So we were really pushing the envelope. And I just have great respect for that race. We, we earned our stripes, <laughs> cut our teeth in that race. And so, yeah, La Carrera Panamericana would be it. Wow. How do you keep going? Like when, when I think about those almost went off a cliff, how do you kind of mentally bring yourself back to compete at that high level without having like PTSD or something from it? <laughs> oh boy. Well, I will say, so that was in 2015 and literally we did go almost go off a cliff. My tires were over inflated about 20 PSI all the way around. I was I'm still consider myself a new driver because of how late I've started. And I didn't know what was wrong with the car. So overinflated tires and, um, you know, I could feel it, but I didn't know what the cure was. And we were getting on the car in front of us and I should have pulled over. You know, if you're yelling at your navigator, something's wrong with the car. Gee, Renee, (laughs) even though you're getting a really great time, maybe you ought to pull over. So I learned a lot of lessons in that one. Because uh, you don't talk to your navigator. They talk to you. Unless you don't understand them, you don't say anything. You're pretty silent. And after that, I will say, not only was the car just totally a mess and it uh, took two or three days to get it put back together, I was a mess. So you, I just had to rethink everything because it was, let's see, I'd done the law career in my car, 13, 14. This would have been the third year in my car. And we had won our class once the year prior. We'd gotten second in class, but we placed really high in the overall standing. And um, it just made me question everything and had to think through everything. How did I get here? What, what happened? You know, was it just a fluke? Do I know how to drive? And all those, but and so through all that process, it was like, yeah, Renee, you, here's how you got here. But even yet, even after reevaluating and looking all, at all those things, when I got back in the car after we got it fixed, I was definitely you know, down, down, down the ladder in my confidence and basically had to rebuild that through every mile and every stage of every day to get all that back. And we ended up finishing second in our class, but it was this huge mental process of getting that confidence back. I wasn't, it wasn't a fear thing at all. It was just the confidence factor of, and then being able to get it, get in there and just push push it hard again. It took a while. Again, for the listeners know, when you say your car, what do you drive, Renee? I drive a 1956 Porsche and the model is a 356A, Model A. Wow. I'm just processing this. I'm making an assumption here, but there's modern technology on the vehicle. No. (laughs) <laughs> there's no I call I say there are no save me features on the car we have a roll cage so that's you know modern I guess you could say not really but it's an improved road roll cage than what they would have had we do have a, a fire system right a fire extinguisher system um, you know some of those things like an improved fuel cell better safety belts than they would have had in the 50s um, a racing seat but as far as any modern technology or what I call save me features, we don't have those things. That's a very raw, rough car with, you know, 
all the old stuff in there and takes a lot more. Uh, that was just one reason I, I just love that car also. It just takes a lot more. You have to bring more to the table as a driver. And also because the engine's in the back, so it's not equally distributed, the weight. And, um, you know, it's got a lot of weight in the back. It just takes, you know, how to handle it. You have to learn how to handle that car. It, it is a bit of a challenge. Wow. You said a 57, a 1957. 1956. The same year I was born, which is so funny because I had no, when I bought it, it didn't even dawn on me at the time that we had the same birth date. Wow. Now, did you buy it and it was already prepared or you had to get it like the roll cage installed and everything? I bought a, a car that needed to be prepared to be a race car, a rally car. It was just a, a, great car for the street for driving around and had to go through that whole thing and, you know, find a car builder and find, you know, work together with him, learn about the options because for an event like the La Carrera, it's 2000 miles. And so you have to make a lot of decisions because there's decisions that you can make based upon you want to be really fast or you want a really strong, durable car that'll make it to all those miles and not break on you. So you have constantly balancing those two elements and uh, yeah, I had to learn a lot, get a car builder and track through all those ideas and make those decisions and make it into a rally car. I, I'm thinking that car does not have power steering. No, it does not have power steering. And I'm, I'm, again, I'm piecing this together to put this together for the listeners because there's things that are so common today that you don't even think that they didn't exist. <laughs> Do you right. know what I mean? Especially with younger listeners. Right. So, okay, for example, when the car was originally from the factory, an improvement that we've made is that it came with drum brakes and we've put disc brakes on it. So that's an improvement. The car also from the factory came with a steering wheel that's as big as a Volkswagen bus would have been. And in fact, it looks the same. And so, and that's because to help it turn. Because there was no power steering, right? So the larger the wheel, for leverage, right? The yeah. easier it is to turn. Well, we've shrunk that down to a small steering wheel, a racing wheel, and so it takes a lot of strength to hold that thing and to make the car to go where you want it to go. Yeah, my first car <laughs> did not have power steering, and I'm not big. I'm five two, and my brother was a football player. He benched four hundred pounds, and he had the hardest time driving my car because of not having power steering and you start to figure out that once you get it going a little bit it makes it easier to turn (laughs) and you start to learn these little nuances to it wow that's exactly don't try to turn it when it's dead still right no no (laughs) give it a little motion forward and it helps it helps it right absolutely wow so I'm just processing this. How have you been received? You know, it's, I imagine you walking up, you have this car, this 56 Porsche, and hey, I want to turn this into a a rally racing car. And by the way, I'm the one driving it. How was that received when you shopped around? Oh, gosh. Um, I will say that everybody I spoke to from my car builder to my first navigator, to the people that I competed with um, in Mexico, everybody was amazing. In fact, I 
I didn't even think about myself as a woman driver. I just thought about myself as a driver because I never felt any distinction from them. And in my own mind, I don't think that way. And I was just, it was just great. There was this huge esprit de corps and camaraderie and, you know, sharing parts, sharing stories, helping each other get our cars fixed. Cause you know, you'd rather beat them on the road racing than you, than, you know, because their car broke down. So there was just, I just had an amazing experience, um, especially in the beginning. There have been some things since then and, you know, outside of Mexico and some places that I've had some kind of odd response, but generally speaking, it's been just fantastic. So I'm sitting here doing the math. You started rally racing when you're 56. You're 64 now. So you're knocking on the door of doing this for a decade now. I know. Can you believe that? I can't believe the time has gone by so fast. There's so many more things I want to do with my car. I wish I could sl- slow time down, right? We probably all wish that. Wow. And, <laughs> you know, I, I imagine, you know, you're sitting on a plane because you have to have your car shipped to these different continents, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'm just envisioning this kind of casual conversation because if you're flying to different continents, I imagine... There are definitely flights that are longer than others. In a casual conversation, what do you do? (laughs) Have you just had people's jaws drop when you're like, well? (laughs) Oh, gosh, Jamie. You know what? I'm always embarrassed to talk about it, and I don't know why. I don't know if it's embarrassment or I don't know how to – I don't know why. I don't know why. It's just – I'm always reluctant to tell people and I I can't answer why, but you know, once I tell them, yes, exactly what you're saying their you know, eyes get a little bigger and their mouths drop open and, and then we have a lively conversation and I've gotten, I've gotten better, but I think I'm just in general, not a person who's um, talks a lot about who I am and what I do. And I just think it's still getting over that. I've, I've typically, I'm really shy and this racing thing has forced me even like, to now to be on your podcast, I never ever would have done this. I would have been too afraid. So I, I've got gained a lot of personal confidence and all, but still I have this whole shy thing about me. I think that's what goes on. But yes, I do get some curious expressions and a lot of questions after I tell them. I I can only imagine because if I were the person sitting next to you and you shared that with me, I would be like tons of questions out of pure curiosity and there's a lot of unknown i feel in the united states around rally racing and in like like what you were saying there's two there's two types of rally racing but it seems more prominent in other countries and not as prominent in the united states is that am i off on that or is that accurate from my understanding and my research absolutely now if you have a modern car and you want to do off-road rallying or you have a truck, there are definitely events here. Are there as many as there are in other countries? No. You know, Europe has a huge culture and in Latin America and in different parts of the world, but there are definitely um, opportunities. If you want to do tarmac rallying or rallying with older cars, then it becomes a smaller opportunity, even in the world. And you said you chose the older car to challenge yourself as a driver even further. 
I, yes, I did. I, I just thought I want to drive an old car and I don't know why I thought that. And then when I saw that car for the first time, it was without even really knowing anything about it. I just loved the way it looked. And then it sounded like my VW bug I had when I was in high school. And I, you know, drove around with all those great memories you, you have having fun as a kid. And, uh, so I picked that car for that reason. And, um, you know, it's hard to find places to race an older car in rally racing. That's why we've actually entered some events where there's never been my car or it's all modern cars mm-hmm. just to give it an opportunity to be out there and, and race. Yeah. Get, get back in the driver's seat. As we're going through this, and I realized I have never asked, what did you do before you were a rally race driver? Gosh. I was uh, a mom of four children, a wife, and I home educated our four kids. And I did that for about 20 years. And they all went off to college. They got academic scholarships. And, you know, I wasn't looking for something to do. I was enjoying having some time to spend with my husband and do some recreating and, you know, pausing in life, right? And relaxing a little bit. And then I, that's when I heard this thing in my head, I'm going to race a car. And it was, I wasn't a happy camper because I was actually enjoying having a little free time and, and pursuing some other things. So, um, that's what I did prior to racing. Well, I, I tell you what, the homeschooling, my my hat is tipped to you. <laughs> With the pandemic and everything going on, where it's flipped to homeschooling, um, thank goodness for my partner's help on this. But this is, it, it's, uh, it's interesting. And I don't think people realize how that is in itself a full-time job. My grandmother was a teacher for 30 years. Kudos to you, Renee. I just think about all these parents that are homeschooling now who didn't choose it. (laughs) It got thrust upon them, right? And it's tough. It's tough when you choose it. You know, when I started in the early 80s, there was no curriculum really. I, you know, had to create my own curriculum and figure out what all, what it, what it would look like, right? How do you homeschool? And, um, even with, but even with having the resources today or, or support from a school, it's tough. It's, and I think especially if you don't start off when they're little and they're accustomed to you being their teacher, to now put that hat on and be their teacher, that's a huge challenge. And I just look at the parents today doing it, and I say high five to you guys. I know it's, it's not easy. No, it, it, probably the most frustrating thing is is we'll say – the exact same thing the teacher is saying, but when the teacher said it, says it, don't listen. And they won't listen to us as their parent. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, goodness. So you have a navigator, which is the ultimate trust exercise, in my opinion. Your most recent race, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, your navigator was your daughter. Exactly. Juliet was my navigator. So I work with my daughter, Christina. She and I are Valkyrie Racing and Valkyrie Gives. And if she hadn't been behind the camera, I would have asked her to be in the navigator seat. But um, she, you know, she was going down and had different responsibilities for our race. And I decided that I really wanted a woman in the car with me. And when I thought about my daughters in the past, it was always Renee, you're a mom. How could you ask your daughters and put them at risk in your car like that? 
but they've been showing such a huge interest in all of it and wanting to be participants that Juliet just happened to have an opening in her schedule with her work. And so I asked her and it was our first time in the car together. And it was exceptional to have my daughter in the car and to be with a woman in the car. It was, it was just amazingly awesome. I just loved it. We kind of talked about it before. You know, they always say, you know, don't go into business with your family member and, this is kind of like going into business with a family member, having them sit shotgun and navigate you. Was there a training that she had to go through? Juliet went with me to a rally school here in the United States. It's actually outside of Austin, Texas, called Rally Ready. And they worked with her some. There really isn't any way to practice, but um, there were mock notes from a prior event, like the one we were doing. And so she became familiar with that. And we did a little bit of time in the car together, maybe an hour uh, prior to the event. But she and I just had to figure it out together when we got down there. And uh, she was a really quick study on it. She's super smart. And I don't think we had more than about 30 seconds of a crossword the whole, the whole time. And I think what that race was, I think six days of racing altogether, seven day event and six days of racing. Wow. Which brings me to you. So that was the same training that you had from that schooling for when you started your rally racing? Well, for me to learn how to drive my car, there really wasn't any opportunity because those first two or three years, it was always being worked on in the sense of being developed. So whether it was the roll cage or the fuel cell, like those kind of basic things were done, but things to improve the car, um, like let's say improving the suspension a little bit, changing the drum brakes to disc brakes and different kinds of things took a period of time, you know, time and money. Those were things didn't have a lot of. So it took a period of time and the car was never available for me to drive. The first two events that I did in Mexico, literally I didn't get to to even drive in the car except for maybe 30 minutes until we actually got in the race. And, um, and then even when it was prepared to go off road, the same kind of thing, I got a chance to be in the car for maybe an hour or so before we started off roading, but to practice, I went to the school and got what they call a buggy, a rally buggy, uh, because the engine was in the back and it was small and lightweight, similar to my car and was able to practice for a few days in Texas, um, off road in that vehicle, trying to learn how to handle a car, totally handled differently, right? Depending upon the surface you're on, whether it's wet or dry or tarmac or mud, it's, it's going to handle differently. So that's how I trained um, prior to going to Africa. Wow. Of all the continents that you have raced on, do you have a favorite? Oh, that's a really hard one. Um, Peru was so exceptional to be down there. Um, we had a ton of car trouble in that race. In Africa, we were in Kenya and Tanzania, totally amazing. That was loads of mud, rain, deep sand and stuff, hard. You know, I had trouble with the car in both of those. It's a toss-up. Um, both really amazing people, roads, seeing giraffes and all those African animals when you're racing was just totally wild. Um, Couldn't even imagine. Yeah, it was, it was, it was just, this happening. It was just um, uh, unreal. And then being in Peru, we were racing up to 16,000 feet in the Andes and just the landscape and the people and 
even in the wildlife they have there, it was just all of it was otherworldly. Um, both events, I would love to go back and uh, have the car prepared a little better. We had we learned some things in both of those events and actually be able to be more competitive. But I would it's a toss up between those two. Mm. Do you ever stop and just kind of pinch yourself, Renee? Like, holy mackerel. <laughs> yes, I can't believe that I'm living, I'm, I'm in this. It's sort of like a movie. It's not till you really stop and think about it. Yeah. I, I never imagined I'd be here. I never imagined I'd be doing this. It's it's beyond anything I could have imagined. And yeah, I pinch myself and wake up. It's I feel so privileged in the sense that I've had this opportunity and I've met all these amazing people and been able to work with all these amazing people. And just, I've been so blessed by the whole thing. And it's, it's also kind of led you into ultimately we, we talk about serendipity, right? How the nonprofit that you and your daughters mm-hmm. yeah. started and just a just a make sure everyone picks up on this. The name of your racing company is? Valkyrie Racing. And then the name of the nonprofit is? Valkyrie Gives. Valkyrie Racing, Valkyrie Gives. And do you mind sharing why that name? No, I'd love to share with you. So Valkyries are from Norse mythology. And it was their belief that um, Valkyries were women warriors that would come from Valhalla, which is their heaven. And they would go to the battlefield and they'd rescue the wounded and the dying that were worthy. And they would take them back to Valhalla. They would heal them and they would restore life. So I say that they were they're brave, courageous women with compassionate hearts. And then our whole thing was we want to be modern day Valkyries. And that's how the two came together. So beautiful. I love that. Let's talk a little bit about Valkyrie gifts. And the story in which it came about is pretty profound and pretty cool and very just serendipity at its best. Do you mind sharing with the listeners? There are a lot of nonprofits out there, a lot of different topics and focus, and all of them are needed. So how do you narrow down what am I going to spend my time and money doing? Do you care sharing the story around how you settled on the topic that you settled on? Well, just like I didn't choose to be a a driver, right? It sort of found me was a have to. The whole thing of helping kids that are being trafficked, so we'll call it child trafficking, is uh, is something that found me. And and truly it did. It was, um, I was on a tour bus and I sat down next to a young couple and I uh, struck up a conversation with them And, you know, they were asking me, I was asking them about ourselves. And the man said that he worked for the FBI and he proceeded to tell me that he posed as, we'll call it a John, a customer. And he was trying to find people that were making child pornography, selling child pornography and using child pornography. And then he would make an arrest and then testify against them and try to get a conviction and get these people put in jail. I knew nothing about any of this. And when I heard about it, it was just awful, awful. And it gripped my heart. And it was something that I wanted to learn more about. And so I got his contact information and we had several conversations. And through that, I realized how the pornography feeds into the use of children, right? The buying of children to act out 
what they see and how they're con- so connected. And then, of course, through the internet, you can do so much research. And I learned a lot more about it. And then I had this ex- another experience not long after this first one where I sat next to a man on a rental car bus to pick up a vehicle and sit da- sat down next to him, just glanced over, and he had his phone out. And I saw what was on his phone. And it was a picture of a very young child, a pornographic picture of a very young child. And I don't believe in coincidences. And I just knew that this thing was knocking on my door and I was supposed to do something about it. And those two things, just those two experiences pushed me into believing and feeling and going into doing something about kids being trafficked. So, you know, ugly topic. And I thought, are you kidding me? Because we knew we wanted to do something with our racing because we, we, we realized we had a voice because of how odd it is an older car, older woman. And then we were having success that we could talk about what we cared about. And we were doing things for children in Mexico when we would go down there, but we wanted to have a bigger impact. And this thing at the same time was happening. And it was, this is really a hard topic. You know, how are we going to, how are we going to message this? And, but it was like, we can, we can find a way and we can do this. And as it was, a, we have to do this. And that's how it all got started. I have to share with the listeners because it, and I, and I share this with you too, Renee, when the links were sent to me and I started digging in and doing my research, I obviously went in and looked into not only Valkyrie Racing, but Valkyrie Gives. And I started going through that content and I literally shut it down. I closed out my internet because I, um, it's hard. It's a hard topic. I have a, uh, 12 year old daughter and a lot of the stuff when I have heard about it and researched, that's, that's the age that they look into a lot of the taking children and selling them. It's like a parent's worst nightmare. Mm -hmm. Um, in going there and it being in my face like that, it was hard for me to even, even look at and like really process. And I forced myself to go back in and dig into it some more. So it's, it's, it's a topic that is very heavy and so needed. Sometimes I feel like people avoid it. And I'll raise my hand and say I closed it out because we don't want to see it because it is so heavy Um, and it's necessary. We need to look at it. Yeah, you're right, Jamie. And and also, you know, a lot of the the ideas that we have are that happens over there, meaning across the world in another country. Right. But to realize it happens in our country and the story is the same like you were saying, the age typically of the children and the story of how they get, you know, drawn into it is similar in, in so many ways. Um, and then, yeah, we just think it's not in our neighborhood. It's not in our backyard, but it is in our neighborhood and it is in our state and it is in our suburb or wherever we live. And it is happening. If anybody has a computer and their their internet if they're involved in child pornography, then they're involved in child trafficking. And it's a, 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 a global problem. It's a $150 billion industry annually. 
and it's second to drug trafficking. But unlike drug trafficking, where the, it's a commodity that's bought once, you know, it's a consumable, people and children aren't consumables in the sense that they can be sold over and over and over again every single day. And until they die or they commit suicide or whatever happens, right, over a tragic end, they're, they're very valuable to those that went, want to sell them. And um, there's 25 to 40 million victims of human trafficking in the world, and 20 to 25% of those are children. And so if you look at those numbers, that's a lot of kids. It's 5 to 8 million children. And we always ask ourselves, what's the life of one child worth? And what would you do if that was your child? What, to what extent would you go to rescue your child, to get your child back, to try to give your child back its innocence, its dreams, and all those things? So, yeah, we're definitely um, in this in, in every way. We have three things, right? Our time, our talent, and our money. And uh, my daughter and I uh, work on this nonstop all day. This is what we're, what we care about. I mean, our, our racing is pretty much put on hold right now. So it's giving us even more time to, to do something about this, which is actually this wonderful thing that's come out of COVID. And, uh, it is dark. It is ugly. And like you said, it, it, but it needs to be talked about. And it's, it's just slavery. It's just modern slavery of children and of the worst kind, because it's usually they're sold for sex. Yes, they're sold for labor, but it's primarily sex. And uh, even as young as like that man I met in the FBI, he was dealing with children that were too young to speak. So that's what is that? Five, four years old and younger. Oh my gosh. That's the age for the child pornography because those children can't go tell their parents. They can't talk to them and tell them, hey, this happened to me today or, you know, they can't converse. Right. So that was the, that was what he was working with. Yes. Child pornography happens to elementary age children and older children. In fact, that's how they, a lot of times, um, force girls into, um, being trafficked for sex is they photograph them or they get them to send photos and then they shame them or blackmail them into you need to do this, or I'm going to show these photos, right? I'm going to put them out there in social media, or I'm going to contact your family or all the other things that they tell them, right? Oh, yeah. I won't, I won't go into that anymore. But yes, you're right. It's something we definitely need to be talking about and definitely need to be doing something about. And, and we don't have to get into the details, but you've actually gotten in one step further involved in helping the FBI as well, which is amazing. Well, I have volunteered after I had to go through extensive uh, interview processes and testing and all, but I, I've volunteered to do um, undercover work for actually foreign um, agencies, foreign governments, their law enforcement, working with local nationals, uh, local like nationals, right, in, in different areas and foreign countries uh, to go in and get the evidence needed because they can't go in without a warrant. And a lot of those places need foreigners because foreigners are a lot of times the buyers. So I've gone in with a small group of people where we've had undercover gear and we've gone in and um, gotten evidence, you know, video and tape recordings, you know, voice and video recordings to give to the police to document underage um, children that we have found that were being sold. And, um, 
yeah, we've done that. Now the people I've worked with, they've either been um, either working in the law enforcement in the United States or in some branch of this at home here in the United States, but we aren't working for the FBI. We're working for the, for the countries in which we do our work for their law enforcement. Got it. Got it. Wow. I I mean, (laughs) isn't that terrifying? I mean, the first time that you did that, were you just scared to death or you just kind of get in a zone and you do it? Jamie, I just, you, I don't know what it is. Uh, I think it's just, we're all made differently, right? And so for me, it was like you said, you, I got in a zone. You just get in a zone and you it's like you're acting in a play. And this is your role. This is your name. You have a name, right? You have an alias. And you have a story of what you're there, there for, what you're doing. And then you just go go do that. And, um, you know, I've had my bag checked and they didn't find the, you know, the gear, which was great. But I have to say, just like with racing, I'm typically not afraid. It's, you know, you just get in that bubble, you get in that zone, you purpose to do something and then you go do it. Now, afterwards you think about it, but at the time it's, you know, you're just, you're just going, you're just doing it. Wow. I have, so much respect for you. And, you know, I, I love driving. I love the purpose that, and I love the name. <laughs> I love everything about it, to be perfectly honest, and what you stand for and what you and your girls bring to the table. And wow, I, I'm just, I have so many questions. I could turn this into a series. And I'm sure there's going to be women and probably men as well. It's like, why didn't you ask Renee this? I'm like, because it's just an hour long interview. (laughs) You can't get it all in, unfortunately. So who knows, maybe there'll be a version or a series or a second episode, follow up episode after you complete your Antarctica. And you have officially raced on every continent in one away kudos to you Renee I think this is probably a great time to launch into the red line round and what the red line round is is it's just five rapid fire questions there's no right or wrong answer to it whatever pops into your head is the right answer are you ready oh my gosh okay all right I'm gonna try here we go (laughs) (laughs) all right Renee who or what has been your inspiration throughout your journey in the motorsports industry Well, I would say Doug Mockett. He's an older gentleman. He's probably, I would say, Doug, forgive me if you hear this, pushing 80. And he has, he races in the La Carrera Panamericana every year and another race just like it. He's always in the top one to three people uh, in the whole event where he places. And he's racing against guys in their prime in their 30s. And he just goes all out in this old, early 50s Oldsmobile. And he has, from the first time I raced, he was there. He was a a friend, an encourager. And he's just been such an inspiration to me. I just hope that when I'm his age, I will still be doing everything flat out the way he does. Oh, I love it. The, in Renee, this kind of makes me think about this. When we talk about prime and in age, we think of uh, physical. Do you have a, I don't know, a workout regime or anything that you do? Because when you think about not having power steering, and I don't want to assume, is your car standard or automatic? 
manual. It's a standard. Mm-hmm. Is it a six-speed? No, it's typically a four-speed, but recently it's been a five-speed. Got it. Okay. So when I think about all of those things, is there, I don't know, recommendation that you typically follow just to stay fit to do that? Definitely. You know, you have to eat well, don't you? Because you've got to have stamina. Those are really long days. And then I do train. I, um, I work out doing weights and um, cardio, all that stuff. You've got to be fit, right? Just like anything. It's a sport. It's a, you have to be an athlete. And I do work out. That is outstanding. All right. Number two, where do you go or what resources do you use when you want to learn something new or you get stuck? Oh, wow. I love to read and I love to read books like in my hand. So I'll actually go online and search or talk to people that, uh, you know, have maybe the answers to my questions. If I can get the answer from someone first, I do. But if not, then, you know, I just love to dig in and just read about it as much as I can. What was the last book that you read? The last book I read was Old Man in the Sea. I read that about a week ago, um, Ernest Hemingway. It's just an old favorite of mine. Nice. Renee, what excites you most about what you do? Helping people. Being and being, um, when I say helping people, more specifically, seeing those, those women that wait for us at the end of a really long day that they've had to stand there for an hour or two waiting for us to come in. And, the, and they're from all ages, from, you know, four and five years old to grandmothers and them just with their smiling faces and their enthusiasm for what we're doing and their hugs and their kisses and their encouragement. I just, and then they will cry and, and just all of that, just having that time with them, those other women, it, it's so meaningful. And then the team, having the people that I've had the, the privilege and honor to work with on my team, whether it's my children, my daughters, um, my family, and, and just the mechanics and the car builders and all, and they've just had so much passion and we've all had this respect and camaraderie. It's, I've met the most wonderful people. What was, this isn't part of the red line question, but this is just out of pure curiosity. What was it like for you that first time that you had those girls or women literally just crying over seeing what, like you being an inspiration, what was that like for the first time seeing that? Because you shared with me how you came into this not thinking that it's a male-dominated, you know, motorsport or industry. You came into this just not to do that per se, but just, hey, this is on my bucket list and I'm drawn to do this. What was that like seeing firsthand the impact that you're making knowing that that's not what you really came to do, but it was a byproduct. Well, I think we, when we talked last week, it was really, I was going to do this one time and that was it. But because of those experiences that you're talking about with those young girls and those women to have what they gave me and what I was able to share with them and give them, I mean, we, there's this whole exchange of our soul and our heart and relating, even if we didn't speak the same language that to me just became like this driving force to keep doing it. And for me, that, that has been one of the most amazing parts that I felt so blessed by. I was just so surprised. Like you said, I didn't know it was a male sport. And then to see their reaction and all, it was, wow, it was, it was just all the more reason just to keep doing it. Mm, 
That's beautiful. What is a personal habit or practice that has helped you significantly when you feel stuck or discouraged? Jamie, I pray. I believe in God and that's what I do. I just, you know, there's that verse that says, cast all your cares upon him for he careth for you. And I just like talk to God and tell him all that stuff and then just try to let go of it and just take the next step forward. And that's my go-to. I just got chills. It's so simple. You know, it's so simple. Finally, what is your parting advice to other femcanics finding their way in the motorsports industry? Mm. Don't say you can't. Don't let others say you can't. I call them the naysayers. Like, tune them out. Be respectful. Nod your head. Smile. Let them say their piece, but just go on and do what you're going to do. And don't second guess yourself and don't have to figure it out. You'll learn as you go. That's just to me over and over again is I've been, we've been learning as we go, as you go and do it, you figure it out. And it's the best way you learn what you shouldn't do and what you should do. You know, just those doors just keep opening and it just happens for you. But if you have something that you've thought about doing, don't wait, just go out and get going. Don't wait till everything's in place or in order. And then also just to push your envelope, push your limits through doing all that. You'll learn so much about yourself and you'll grow. And, and to me, that's, you know, one of those things in life that we all need to be doing is growing and changing. And, and, and therefore, we're better for ourselves and better for everybody else. Beautifully said, my friend. Renee, where and how can people connect with you and Valkyrie Racing or Valkyrie Gives? Well, we're online. We have websites. So it's V-A-L-K-Y-R-I-E racing.com or ValkyrieGives.com. Those two websites sort of connect back and forth, right? Uh, We are on Instagram and I think it's Valkyrie underscore racing. Contact us if you have questions. You know, there's those, you can email us if you want to know something, Um, reach out. We'd love to hear from you. And we'd love your support. We're on a campaign of raising money. You can't do anything without money. I mean, I mean, we can talk about it, but you have to fund, whether it's rescuing kids or educating or doing rehabilitation. All of that takes money. And uh, every single dollar that comes into Valkyrie Gives goes out. I don't have a salary. My daughter doesn't get paid through anything we do for Valkyrie Gives. We have no overhead, 0% overhead. We vet all these NGOs where people literally are risking their lives. Some of them are literally risking their lives, death threats from people that they're disrupting their business with rescuing kids. And um, we've targeted people that need our help, that we that we want to help, and that we just need the money to do it. Hmm. Thank you for doing what you do, Renee, and thank you so much for being in the driver's seat today. And thank you to both of your daughters as well. Because uh, I know being the person that you are, you're very humble and you would probably give way more credit to both of your daughters. And I know it's an absolute team effort. So thank you to you and both of your children and your family for supporting you. I know all of this is a, a big team effort there. Yeah, you're exactly right, Jamie. I couldn't do any of it without him and family, right? And it's being surrounded by those amazing, supportive, loving people. And thanks. I'll pass on the word to them. Absolutely. Thanks again, Renee. Thank you, Jamie. Bye-bye. My name is Renee Brinkerhoff. My company is Valkyrie Racing, and I'm a femme canon.
Kristen Hope Migas is in the driver's seat next. She grew up with a strong passion for racing and badass cars and trucks. After attending the Monster Jam World Finals, she made a decision at 16 years old to pursue a monster truck racing career. She has raced under five different truck identities. Monster Mutt Dalmatian, Raising Cane, Megalodon, Ice Cream Man, and now Wolf's Head. Be sure to tune in next week. Until next time, Femcanics. Thanks for listening to the Femcanic Garage Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Femcanic Garage. Check out our website, femcanicgarage.com, for swag and the transcribes for each episode. If you want to help grow this community, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, review, and most importantly, share this podcast. Spread the word. This is Jamie B. signing off. Are you a femcanic?